This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you for that introduction. I think that's the, that's the nicest way anyone has ever said that I'm wrong about most things, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is good. Um, so I want to start by thanking Villanova and the Ryan Center uh, and the Villanova Center for Liberal Education for inviting me to speak, also ACS. I'm deeply honored to appear in this particular lecture series, and I'm humbled by the caliber of the other speakers who have spoken previously. So thank you to Colleen Sheehan and J.P. Spiro for the invitation, and Mary Lou and others for Brenda for helping making it work. I also need to express my gratitude to Villanova uh, and Jack Duty in particular. While most of you students were still in high school, Jack invited me to work for a year in the ACS and I think in retrospect now, uh, that experience has probably spoiled me for the rest of my career. It was a great experience for me. I still use uh, many of the things that I learned that year with great Villanova students, with my own students now. So I'm delighted to be back at Villanova. And I really mean to say I'm delighted to be back here at Villanova, to physically see friends, shake hands, not just argue with JP on Facebook, but to do it face to face to actually stand here in front of you, because it didn't have to be that way, right? We could have Skyped me in, I could have taped the talk, you could have watched it in your dorm room or on your device on television. But there's something different about us all getting together physically. We are bodily persons. It creates a different vibe. If when I'm done, this has gone well, you will hopefully have experienced something good together. If, on the other hand, it's a train wreck, well, that's something differently experienced in community than by yourself also. The main thing I want to do tonight is tell you about two different stories, which you can tell from the title come from two different movies. I want to tell these stories and then talk a little bit about how the ideas in them illustrate two different ways of learning, of doing education. But first, I want to say a word about using stories and even popular culture at all. Before I left, someone from home asked me, are you really going to get away with doing a lecture about The Karate Kid and The Matrix, popular movies? And it's a fair question. The first answer that came to mind that was that I first learned the incredible potential of using popular culture to interact with classic texts and important topics from my colleague J.P. Spiro who, if you don't know him, he's kind of a big deal. His use of a cinematic classic to illustrate the foibles of masculinity and the contours of modern feminism was an inspiration to me. The classic I speak of, of course, is Anchorman. <laughs> That's not what I told my friend back home. I was feeling rather pretentious at the time, so I responded that I was looking at films because I thought that's what Plato would have me do. Now, because I work at a Baptist university and I live in the Bible Belt, responding to any question with, what would Plato do, is not the norm. <laughs> Nevertheless, Plato would tell us that the stories we tell reveal a great deal about us and about our culture. We could describe Plato's Republic, arguably the second most influential book in Western history, as a prolonged conversation about the importance of the stories we tell the music we listen to, and what these stories and music do in shaping and forming who we are. I want to say these stories both reveal things about us and they also make us, uh, they shape us in certain ways. I'll give you a couple examples. 1963, the Beatles released a song called I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was their first number one song in the United States when it debuted in 1964 and launched the British invasion. By 1968, they had a hit song called Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Something had changed between 1963 and 1968 <laughs> in American culture. In the early 1980s, there was a singer on an MTV Awards named Madonna, incredibly talented singer. She shocked society by doing what? She sang a song in a wedding dress. The song was Like a Virgin. If that doesn't sound too shocking to you, that might indicate things have changed. Think about what a young pop singer might have to do now to try and be shocking at the MTV Awards. Or do a video where she's licking a wrecking ball completely naked. <laughs> the, sorry to bring up that image, but <laughs> I'm not that sorry. Here we go. 
The power of stories to shape us for good or for ill is an idea with an old and reputable pedigree. We have it from Plato, we have it from Aristotle. I, we should not go without mentioning Augustine's message about this in the Confessions and his concern for his friends and the shows that they watch and the effect it's gonna have on their character. Entertainment is more than just entertainment. Last February, advertisers spent up to $4 million to have 30 seconds of your time during the Super Bowl. Why did they do that? It's because they thought they could have an effect on you with only 30 seconds. So back to Plato. The old stories of Greece from Homer and Hesiod and others were wonderful stories, too wonderful perhaps, but they provided so many bad moral examples. Odysseus is a crafty liar. Achilles pouts and refuses to fight after Agamemnon steals his slave girl. Zeus himself cannot control his sexual urges but takes Hera in public in front of everyone and indulges in several other sexual adventures. Gods aren't supposed to act like that. The Homeric Greek gods and heroes are, to borrow a phrase from someone who comes much later, human, all too human. They are gods behaving badly. We see this in another Platonic dialogue uh, with Socrates and Euthyphro. And Euthyphro, in this story, is charging his dad with impiety. He's going to put his dad in jail. And Socrates is shocked by this. How can you do this? This seems to be a very strange thing. Can you explain to me what piety is so that when I go on trial, I can have you, your reasoning as my defense? Euthyphro is able to point to what Zeus did and what Kronos did. The very origin of the Greek gods has some really severe daddy castration issues that also are not good examples for those who hear the stories. These gods and heroes simply won't do as moral exemplars as nursery tales and heroic stories with which to raise the next generation of Athenians. And so we might say that Plato gives us a new Achilles in the character of Socrates. This new Achilles, Socrates, fights philosophically rather than physically. Whereas Achilles was a slave to his passions and desires, recall the opening of the Iliad is about the rage of Achilles. Socrates models an exemplary human being who has his head and his chest and his stomach all in the right order. The reason of his head partnering with the courage and well-trained emotions of his chest to create moderation of the desires. If Plato's greatest book deals in part with the subject of stories and character, we do well to pay close attention to the actual stories in the book. For Plato doesn't just point out what's wrong with the old stories, he offers new ones of his own. I want to quickly illustrate, uh, talk about two stories from Plato before getting on to the two films. I have to warn you, these stories are 2,400 years old, so there's going to be spoilers here, but that's your own fault at this point. That much time has elapsed, so you've been warned. The first story comes from Book Two of the Republic. And here we have uh, Socrates' student, Glaucon. And Glaucon is trying to radicalize the argument made in Book 1. In Book 1, Thrasymachus has said that there's no such thing as justice. Justice is only the advantage of the stronger. Might makes right. And Socrates shuts him up, but does so in kind of a fishy way. It's not quite satisfying. And Thrasymachus and his brother Adamantus in Book 2 want to radicalize Thrasymachus' argument. And so he tells this story. What he wants to illustrate is just how wicked human beings can be when they think they can get away with it. You want, a, you want a contemporary illustration of this, look at anonymous internet comment boards under websites. When people can get away with how they speak, uh, there's a downward spiral. Well, what's the story he tells? Glaucon relays the story of Gyges, a shepherd who discovers a crack in the ground, and going down, he discovers a large, hollow, bronze horse. I think Plato's Greek audience would have caught that hint, a not-so-subtle dig at Homer. In the horse is a huge human skeleton, and Gyges finds a ring on the finger of the skeleton and takes it off. He goes back up out of the tomb, rejoins his fellow shepherds around the fire, and what he finds is when he twists the ring a certain way, they talk as if he's not there. And he twists the ring back, and all of a sudden they see him again. He can turn invisible or not, depending on how he turns the ring. Realizing his newfound potential, he volunteers to report back to the king and uses his ring to seduce the king's wife, 
I'm not sure how an invisible guy is all that seductive, but that's how it works in the story. <laughs> Nevertheless, the wife is seduced, she joins forces, they kill the king, and Gyges takes power as king himself. This is the burden that Socrates has to meet for the rest of the book, showing that human beings would not necessarily act that way if they could get away with it. Can you imagine a story like this finding an audience or having an impact? A story about someone going underground, finding a ring of power that turns the wearer invisible and slowly amplifies evil and corrupts the wearer? <laughs> Someone's got, okay, thank you. The other story I just want to briefly mention from Plato's Republic. This is Allegory of the Cave. In Book 7, Socrates tries to illustrate the nature of reality and our limited knowledge of it by describing people in a cave chained up against a wall, unable to look left or right or behind them, unable to move, just staring straight ahead. All they can see is the shadows against the wall, shadows made by the light, which is always out of their direct sight. So they take the shadows to be their reality. By some miracle, one of the prisoners is able to ascend out of the cave and into the real sunlight. He is able to see the world as it is, and this philosopher, as it turns out, is the one. He is the one who can go back down into the cave and try and free everyone else who remains there in bondage. There are many lessons, and for 2,400 years, people have talked about what this means, but among the notions in this allegory are, are these truths Plato is trying to tell us. This world is not all there is. There is a reality behind what our physical senses tell us. Most of us are deceived, and those who do see the truth as it really is are duty-bound to tell those still in darkness, even at the risk of their own lives, a risk that Socrates found to be more than hypothetical. As an aside, it's not really that surprising that many Christian thinkers have found Plato to be more of an ally than a rival. But that's a thought for another time. The allegory of the cave I've just described also comprises the plot of another old story. Not quite as old as Plato's Republic, but it does come from the last millennium, which makes it ancient. This is a movie released in 1999 called The Matrix. <coughs> the Matrix, how many of you have seen The Matrix? Wow, good lot of you, okay. Uh, the Matrix tells the story of Neo, the one, portrayed by Keanu Reeves, one of the finest thespians of our generation. Neo begins the story not as Neo, but as Thomas Anderson, a Dilbert-like cubicle dweller by day and a subversive computer hacker by night. We see hints about Neo's fate even in his name. Thomas might remind us of Doubting Thomas. Anderson means son of Anders, or son of man, Anders being the etymological Greek root for man, anthropos, misanthrope. Uh, son of man, is one of the biblical terms that refers to Jesus. And Thomas Anderson, like in the Bible, Abraham, Peter, and Paul, gets a new name, Neo, new. He's going to be the new son of man. Early on in the story, another character says to Neo, you're my savior, man, my own personal Jesus Christ. Through a series of adventures, Neo learns that the world he inhabited is not the real world. He has been stuck in the cave, and by taking the red pill, joins a small group of freedom fighters who have escaped the cave of unreality. These freedom fighters believe that Neo is the one, the one to defeat the evil forces oppressing human beings and lead everyone out of slavery. There's only one problem. Neo is ignorant and weak. He doesn't know how to fight, doesn't know how to lead, doesn't know how to reload a whole mess of automatic weapons. He needs to learn a whole lot and learn it quickly. Unlike Jesus, Neo does not have 33 years to get ready to save the world. Time is of the essence. So one underlying theme of the matrix then is education. How does Neo learn? And what does the manner of Neo's education tell us about human nature? Those of you who have seen the film will recall when Neo is set back into this chair, like a programming chair, and there is what looks like a long, thick needle, not unlike this microphone here, and it's inserted into a data receptacle in the back of Neo's head, sort of a human USB port built into Neo's skull. He is going to learn kung fu and combat training 
an assortment of martial arts. And so he does. His programmer, Tank, tells us 10 hours straight, he's a machine. No years of practice, no sweat, no tears, no blood, just downloading the data. We see just how effective this instant education is during the iconic fight scene in which Neo, now a martial arts maestro, spars with his mentor, Morpheus. Now consider for a moment how attractive this way of learning might be, particularly as you approach the end of the semester. Do you have a final test in organic chemistry? And don't worry, you can upload an entire semester's worth of material to your brain in less than a minute. You need to memorize a truckload of constitutional law cases. There's an upload program for that as well. You have a job or internship interview and you want to ensure that you remember all the details about that prestigious law firm or nonprofit. We have an app for that. Of course, this sort of technology is science fiction, not reality. Although it might be a little bit closer than you think, depending on who you listen to. If you listen to people like Ray Kurzweil and other transhumanists, you will learn, according to them, we are only a couple decades away from what he calls the singularity. And at that point, we will not only be able to download things into our brains, we'll be able to upload our consciousnesses into the online cloud. In fact, Kurzweil himself, and Kurzweil is not a kook. He is an extremely accomplished scientist. He has been saving every scrap of data and information and memorabilia about his father, who has passed away, in the hopes that someday computer technology will be able to assimilate all that information and reproduce his father's personality. Goes without saying that if we can upload ourselves electronically, then bodily death is no longer the final certainty that we now think it is. It does sound far-fetched, to say the least, and I think there are good reasons to doubt we'll ever be able to transfer our consciousnesses, who we are, to some sort of computer-based interface. But there are some really smart people working on this. Try Googling brain-computer interface. Some of you have computers now, look it up if you like, but you'll see how far some of this research has gone and where they believe it's going. Yet even if we doubt how far-reaching this technology can be, the role that machines and computers have taken in how we learn and who we are has expanded in ways obvious and subtle. Some of you may have seen recently this is a commercial that's been all over about the young, awkward, junior high boy who starts off the commercial by saying, Google, what is glossophobia? And the friendly computer voice gives him the definition. How many of you have seen this commercial? Okay, good, we watch a lot of movies and TV, all right. Uh, we're treated to a montage of this young man watching the King's speech with Colin Firth and watching a speech by FDR. He gets up in front of his class with the device he nails the speech, and the pretty girl bats her eyelashes at him, and we get a heartwarming ending. Google has saved the day. If you pay close attention to that commercial, every single moment is mediated by the tablet. The boy learns about speeches on the tablet, watches the speeches on the tablet, goes to sleep with a tablet next to him in bed, his mom makes an appearance. We never actually see her talk to her son, but she grabs the tablet while he's sleeping and she programs in a note for him to find the next day at school encouraging him. He takes the tablet up with him to give the speech. We might think there's some actual genuine human contact when the pretty girl bats her eyelashes, but actually, no, what does he do then? He has to Google how to ask a girl out. The tagline of the commercial the new nexus made for what matters. Now we could spend quite a bit of time on Google. I like Google, I use Google, but the Google Glass idea is actually not that far off from what Neo goes through, if you think about it. And what used to be a search engine with Google or even Amazon, something that you use to help you find something, is now reversed, right, where you start typing in two letters and it's suggesting things for you. 
you actually don't need to think as much, and Amazon has actually been quite explicit about this. The whole point is to take the thinking out of it to suggest to you as quickly as possible where you might want to go. Let's leave Google alone for a little bit and go back to this strong claim about the possibilities of learning we see portrayed in the matrix and theorized by Ray Kurzweil and others. Supposing it were possible, would it be desirable? What if we could order up knowledge and learn in a matter of minutes and hours what used to require months and years of hard discipline and study? Is there any reason we should not take advantage of this technology? Would it be wrong to do so? Or maybe it wouldn't be wrong, maybe it would be morally obligatory. You, would, you should do this to help you realize your potential. Maybe it would be merely optional, neither morally forbidden nor required. Another question, perhaps more important. What does the promise of this sort of learning and our reaction to it tell us about how we see human nature? Hold on to those thoughts for a moment as we move on to our next film. This film portrays a more familiar method of learning. Now, how many of you have seen The Old Karate Kid? Okay, that's good. The Old Karate Kid features Daniel LaRusso, an Italian-American teenager who moves from New Jersey to a new high school in California with his mom. And at this new high school, unlike any high school I've ever heard of, the cool kids aren't the football players or the cheerleaders or the rich kids. They do karate. Unfortunately, Daniel manages to tick off the karate click at a, with an ill-conceived uh, prank at a Halloween party, and he soon has the bruises to show for it. His rescuer is Mr. Miyagi, the handyman karate guru, who takes Daniel under his wing and agrees to teach him. In a classic 1980s montage, Daniel arrives at Mr. Miyagi's house, only to find that his training is a series of menial and repetitive tasks. Sanding floors, waxing cars, painting boards, and painting the house. Each one requiring a different motion to make it work. After several days of this, Daniel loses his temper and angrily accuses Mr. Miyagi of exploiting him rather than teaching him. He begins to storm off and Mr. Miyagi in commanding tones tells him to come back. He orders Daniel to go through each of the motions that he'd been doing with these different chores. But while he goes through these motions, Mr. Miyagi attacks him with various punches and kicks. Daniel was surprised to learn that each of the chores he was doing required him to internalize various movements that, when employed, blocked each successive attack. Daniel had unknowingly learned the basic tactics of defensive karate. In the film, he goes on to defend himself successfully, he wins the karate tournament, and dates the beautiful girl. I should add, he does not have to look up how to ask her out on a computer. How does the Karate Kid model of learning differ from Neo's in The Matrix? What assumption does each model make about human nature and how we learn? Is one more or less true to what it means to be genuinely human? Is genuinely human still a meaningful phrase? The Matrix and Karate Kid illustrate two competing visions of what it means to be human and to be a student. Each vision is well entrenched in Western thought and practice. The first vision is best typified by Francis Bacon's axiom that knowledge is power. And Bacon has a whole lot of straight philosophy and straight science on this, but my favorite picture of what he means by this is in a story he wrote called The New Atlantis. New Atlantis follows a group of sailors who get lost in the doldrums in the South Pacific, and they are completely at nature's mercy. After some prayer, they miraculously discover a technologically and morally superior community in the South Pacific, the New Atlantis. There's also a Plato connection here as well. Plato mentions Atlantis in his uh, dialogue, the Timaeus. On this island, the sailors meet authority figures that rise up successively in importance. They first meet basically a harbor master, then they meet a Christian governor, then they meet a Jewish merchant, and then they meet the top guys. And the top guys are all scientists. They manipulate nature so as to mimic and improve on all the goods that nature provides for humanity. And at the end of the story, after they've had this tour 
and been told all these incredible things. And it actually is kind of amazing to go back and read so many hundreds of years ago what Bacon saw coming. They're told to go back to Europe and spread this new gospel of conquering nature for humanity's benefit. Nature in this approach is something to be molded and seems to set no limits to human action. The underlying view of human nature here is that there is no normative claim that arises from nature, human or otherwise, and thus that nature is just the stuff with which we do what we like, even if it means transforming the very human nature that defines what we are. At its best, the motivation fueling this vision is the alleviation of human suffering. Given the mortality rate for most of humanity in Bacon's day, the transformation of nature in exchange for the scientific and medical advances that have so vastly improved our health and comfort seems like a pretty fair exchange. I think penicillin's pretty cool. The troubling question arises when we ask what limits there should be if and when the alleviation of genuine suffering gives rise to the new motive of improving or enhancing perfectly healthy human capacities and talents. Such a transition is not merely academic. I've already mentioned people like Ray Kurzweil and others who look forward to a future of a radically changed human nature. And while today's college students may not have the option of downloading the works of Shakespeare into their memory, they can, and many do, I'm sure no one in this room, but they can and many do, enhance their ability to study, perhaps 10 hours straight, and retain information by relying on prescription drugs to alter their brain chemistry. Such practices are currently legally dubious, but they have their defenders. A 2008 Nature article uh, has several prominent professors not only saying it's all right, but laying out a positive case for government-backed mass-scale cognitive enhancement. And why not? Nothing in the Baconian project defines a line between exercising power over nature and exercising power over human nature. Human beings are, after all, part of nature. The second vision, the Karate Kid version, was first articulated fully by Aristotle, though Plato hints at it as well. Here our habits make our character, and we acquire our habits by repetition, and ideally under the guidance of a mentor, and it's over time. Suppose you have played a musical instrument for most of your life, and you've now gotten pretty good at it. When you began, let's say for the sake of conversation with the piano, much of what you did was just repetition, lots of scales, endless scales, your teacher chiding you to keep your back up, keep your wrists up. Nothing terribly beautiful resulted early on. I can testify this with daughters who are taking piano lessons. But you kept at it, and now you can play Chopin and Mozart. You're an accomplished pianist. The piano student is forced to repeat various actions and scales and postures over and over and over until they become second nature. The same goes for the athlete, say the basketball player, who wants to become a good shooter, something I never was able to do. The basketball player started off doing drills, just like the piano player, and those drills were likely just as tiresome, boring, and dull as the exercises were for the musician. If you have no idea how to shoot a basketball and begin to try, you'll have to constantly remind yourself to keep your elbow in, snap your wrist, jump straight up, land where you jump. You have to make sure the ball has enough arc. You have to consciously remind yourself of these things. You think the veteran basketball player thinks of any of those things when he or she releases a jump shot. The pianist does not think about where her thumbs go or how to push the pedals. These things have become second nature. How? by repetition. Moreover, and this is crucial, neither the apprentice musicians nor the novice ball players could trust that what they were doing in the beginning would someday make them excellent. They had to trust others, most likely older and definitely wiser, others who knew what they were doing. They had to take it on faith that someday their work would pay off. In other words, they had to trust someone whose expertise they could not, by definition, evaluate. They had to be patient 
putting off instant gratification for delayed reward. Paradoxically, under this vision of learning, in order to someday in the future have the freedom to do something with excellence, one has to submit in the, presence, in the present to a form of drudgery. Freedom requires submission. Education thus described is the passing on of practices and therefore knowledge by those who know to those who don't. And it is best started before the young can appreciate what they're getting into. It is, as C.S. Lewis described, older birds teaching younger birds how to fly. This is the sort of education we see displayed in The Karate Kid. While this mode of education may seem more familiar to us, given its obvious application to practices like music and athletics, its relation to the deeper purposes of education is not as clear. We have some rough idea of what it means to be a great athlete or a pianist or an architect, fill in the blank. We are much more conflicted about what it means to be an exemplary human being. And Aristotle's answer here is famously vexing. What is the purpose of a human being? Here we have Aristotle's idea of teleology. Right? We think about the acorn. The purpose of the acorn, its end is to become a healthy oak tree. If everything goes right, that's what it will become. The purpose of a knife is to cut, and an excellent knife will cut well. What are the characteristics of the knife that allow it to cut well? You need a sharp handle. You need a sturdy, no, you don't need a sharp handle. You need a sharp blade. Thank you. You need a sturdy handle. If you have a sharp handle, that's a problem, right? If your handle is this big, it's no good. If your handle is this big, it's no good. All these characteristics are needed for the knife to do its job well. Aristotle calls these characteristics virtues. A virtue is that which allows the thing to fulfill its end well or with excellence. Well, what is the purpose or end of a human being? And when we know that, we can also think about what are the virtues that let that human being go from what it is to what it was, what it is meant to be. Aristotle's answer is something like this. Excellent human being will live a life of excellence or virtue in accord with a reason, sort of human flourishing. But we want to know what the source of the good is and how we can know it, and does it stay the same, or is it a moving target? Something else that Aristotle says is that actions are not just temperate or good simply as such, but they're just temperate and good when done as the virtuous person performs them. That is, when they're done because they're good. To someone who is not yet virtuous, an account of what is excellent in human nature seems grounded in circularity. How do we know the good? Because that's what the good person does. How do we know the good person? Because he or she does good things. I've only described these two approaches roughly, and in real life, in real school, in real education, they're not as separated as I presented them here. Each conception has its core difficulty. The Baconian project to con conquer nature for humanity's sake cannot rely on the natural to limit its excesses. Two of the most trenchant prophetic voices that foresaw this, uh, C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley, next Wednesday, November 22nd, is the 50th anniversary of their deaths. Both died on the same day. Their deaths were overshadowed because another famous person who died uh, on November 22nd, President Kennedy. Uh, they saw this coming quite some time ago. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man and fictionalized in that hideous strength. Aldous Huxley in his Brave New World, which is really Plato's Republic in a nightmarish sort of fashion. Instead of gold, silver, bronze, you have alpha, alphas, betas, gammas, deltas. Uh, they pointed this out a long time ago. When nature itself is on the laboratory to be dissected, the table to be dissected and appropriated, it can no longer offer authoritative guidance to the appropriator. Human beings can do amazing things when we reduce the natural world down to its bare elements. But what happens when human nature itself goes underneath the microscope? Who remains to look at it? And what will they be motivated by? As for the Aristotelian difficulty, the question is what grounds the good? In Book 5, Section 7 of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle seems to refer to a permanent natural justice that can anchor a normative sense of human nature and education. Yet in the same passage, he admits that nature can change 
which is of course precisely what the Baconian project says as well. Without a standard beyond nature, Aristotle's God is part of nature, not its creator. Without a standard beyond nature, there is nothing more fundamental to appeal to when faced with the transformation of human nature. Only something beyond nature can authoritatively ground nature, an insight that Aristotle's most famous commentator would draw on in the 13th century. So let me recap briefly these two approaches. I said the matrix assumes people are atomistic. There are like hard drives to receive information. Utilitarian. It assumes a world of data that can be manip manipulated and that a narcissistic mastery of anything in the world is possible by brute force. The Karate Kid model is more relational. It's more humble. It recognizes an external world, a shared world with others that has wonders in it, practices, things that can be learned, but they must be approached with reverence, care, and time, not reducible to brute technological force. How do these two visions of learning play out in college now? The matrix may certainly be science fiction, but I suggest the model is alive and well today. It looks something like this. We might call it the bucket method of learning. This bucket method sees students as recipients of data, data storage. The goal of a class, the goal of a degree, is to transfer information from the expert, from the professor, out of the head of the professor, into the mind of the student through whatever technology is available and efficient. The success of the transfer is judged by how well the student can dump the information back out in the form of a Scantron or a paper. Any means will do for the bucket method. Online, lecture, computer program, MOOC, so long as the info gets transferred. And hence the temptation to use Ritalin or Adderall to help ingest, retain, and regurgitate as much data as possible. Now, I need to give a small caveat, which is that rote memorization and just brute learning something to memorize it has its place. I want my, nurse, my nursing students in my home school to memorize all the stuff they're supposed to memorize in the body. Right? We want lawyers to memorize cases. Now, there's a role for that. Technology does have its place. Memorization has its place. But notice the limitations. The bucket model can help with the things that we need to know with raw data, but is not as helpful with figuring out the sort of creatures we are supposed to be. It can do information, but not formation. Stealing a line there from philosopher Jamie Smith. What can't it do very well? What sort of questions are not answered by the bucket model? Well, what sort of life should a free person live? What is the good life? What is justice? What is beauty? Should we help the least among us? Aren't these questions what the liberal arts are all about? You cannot memorize the answer to these questions. You cannot download them. And I don't want to step on any toes, but I don't think you can really wrestle with them online either any more than you can learn karate online. The truth about human nature, whether taught at an Augustinian school like Villanova or a Baptist school where I teach, is that we are not mere matter in motion, not mere machines to be programmed, nor are we mere Gnostic phantoms controlling our bodies. We are instead incarnational creatures, bodily persons meant to live in community with each other and with God, our hearts are restless until they rest with him. And this makes an enormous difference in how we learn. The Aristotelian Karate Kid model manifests a generational dynamic in which we are taught, we learn, and then we teach. I submit it is a more human and humane vision that takes into account individual weaknesses and limits while providing the means to pursue excellence by living closely with those who know more and less than we do at any particular stage in life. Now, some will not be persuaded by such a vision of genuine humanity, and Aristotle might tell us that they have been poorly educated. 
Yet those of us who are persuaded will do well to continue to make the case for an older approach to learning and cultivating excellence, one that is grounded in a more permanent understanding of human nature. Thank you. I'm happy to do it then, either way, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think, I think if we assume that the other one could work, the matrix model could work, and what you're really not debating is the, what will happen with the end result, because the end result, you're going to know whatever it is you're learning either way. The question is, what does it mean? Um, is, is that worth it? Is that a human way to learn? And I guess one of the ways to ask this, if any of you who are athletes or musicians and you've worked really hard to learn whatever you learned or some other skill, would it bother you if someone were able to just learn that like that, and, it, and would they have the same sort of love whatever it is you have done. In other words, it, part of what makes us human is the struggle to accomplish something through the blood, sweat, and tears. And so when we think about Neo and he's, you know, he's got all these martial arts now under his belt and he can do them, does he have that same relationship with, it, with, with whatever the practice is that someone would have who's done it for 20 years? Um, in other words, is the goal to master this sort of uh, knowledge or is to become a certain type of person? And I, th and I think that the, the, the techno way of doing it kind of forecloses the love that you have because you failed at it, because you've worked at it, because you've made it your own. There's an ownership there. When you've accomplished something, you, you feel good about that because you have done it. If it's done for you, it's done to you, and boom, you can do it, um, I mean, you t you're going to take that for granted. Uh, you're not going to treasure it. You're not going to love it. And, I, and you really, I mean, I think you're going to be fairly miserable about it. Um, I don't know, is that? I can ask one of them. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, well, as um, an education major and a future teacher, your talk definitely uh, hit home to me. Uh, and, and it was very good, of course. Um, well, if it wasn't, you wouldn't want to say so. But, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that. It's very kind. Uh, I mean, I've seen it a little bit in classrooms. The students that I have now usually got their, um, their cell phones. How old were you most of you got your, your first phone? 16, 15, 14, 16? The students in a few years will have been getting their first phones at 8, 9, 10, younger. Um, and you think about how attached you are to your phone right now, right? Even me mentioning it might be thinking, hmm, I wonder if I've got, you know, you feel it, get a check. All right, so one of the concerns I have with, I mean, I, I'm not a, Luddite, I think technology can be very helpful, uh, can be very good, but so we sometimes have this tendency to think that we, the more, if it's a new technological thing, we've got to get into the hands of our students, and that's what it means uh, for there to be educational process. And there's, um, you know, there's a uh, professor named Mark Bauerlein who's written a book with a very provocative title called The Dumbest Generation, you won't like this, but Dumbest Generation, uh, How the Digital Age is Stupefying Young Americans or Why You Shouldn't Trust Anyone Under 30. Um, and he actually goes through and he looks at some of the school districts that have had these 
uh, initiatives to give iPads to everyone or give computers to everyone. And then he goes and says, have their test scores gone up? And the answer is no. And it's not had this, you know, this great effect. Um, so, uh, you know, the other thing that, that the technology can tend to do, it can hurt our ability to be attentive with each other, with other actually human beings, right? So, because we are, we, almost everything can be mediated through the machine. Um, I mean, just think about the, the driving thing, right? Um, and if you heard Louis C.K., the, the comedian, has this great little bit uh, recently talking about how, why does everyone want to, you know, risk killing each other because they're texting while driving? Well, some people just aren't very good at driving, apparently, but he says it's because we're afraid of being alone. And that moment when we're driving and we're bored, we think, oh, we can text someone real quick. And so, I, I mean, these are, the question's a great question. It's deeper than I can kind of give in a, you know, quick, quick answer. Um, I think the concerns are that it's going to lessen our ability to attentively pay attention to each other, right? And I have the students come in, and I hear the little doop doop email, and immediately, what do I want to do? I want to ignore the live human being in my office who's come to me to talk about some real question, and I want to see some stupid spam that's coming to my, you know what I mean? So that's, that's one of the concerns that over time, the new normal is uh, we are distracted. Uh, we can't be quiet. We can't pay attention to each other. Um, and we, we trade in basically incarnational, real-life um, relationships, which are hard and messy. That's why, you know, Facebook's nice. That guy starts posting too much either about the Republicans or the Democrats starts driving me nuts. I can lessen how much I see him. But the person who lives next door, the student who's in my class, I actually have to develop the character and the patience to deal with that person because I can't get away from them. And technology allows us to basically pick and choose uh, the sort of interactions that we have. Um, I mean, you, I pretty clearly come out as critical of the, of the neo form, but I try to, I mean, one thing, I want to be fair that the, um, you know, the, the Baconian project of conquering nature has led to a lot of really good things, right? Um, what are the moral implications of, of seeing ourselves as data receptacles and seeing education as merely a series of hoops whereby we get the information in our head, we cram, 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 and spit it out on the test, and then we move on and it really has no effect on us. Um, I don't, I don't want to say that that's, you know, you somehow sinned, that that's, that's immoral, but I think it's a lesser view of what it means to flourish. And that's, you know, and not to sound like a kiss-up, but that's actually one of the things I was really impressed with with the Villanova. And if you look at different colleges, whether you know this coming here or not, very few colleges have the sort of uh, ACS requirement. Whether you like it or not, you're going to do some of these things and think about some of these questions that you otherwise might not. And I just think that's a really good thing. It's not so much that I think that um, some of the, the neo stuff is would would be you know mortal sin or something like that, but I think this is a much better way of thinking about what it means to learn and interact with each other. I think the neo thing encourages us to mainly focus on ourselves uh, and 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 become more atomized. Yes. So I didn't hear the first part. Yeah. In the way you're still going through the same effort that a person, yeah, I mean, I, that would be better. Um, it would still not be good, as good as having the teacher there with you, but it would be better. I mean, in many ways, I think of technology as, you know, if if it can't be any better, then that would be a good substitute. So, say someone, you know, we have someone living way out, uh, and they can't get to the lecture, right? Um, if they watch, the, watch a good lecture, that's better than not watching it at all. But if possible, it's good to be someplace. So if you're trying to learn a practice in karate, I mean, to learn karate on your own, I mean, part of karate is also sparring with someone else who's doing So you can learn it in theory, um, but until you're actually getting hit and working on stuff, it's, it's going to be limited. So I think that would be better, and there's value to it. Um, you know, when you learn a language, you have to brute force memorize cognates and memorize vocabulary. You have to do that, but you also need to talk with other people. And if, and if the best thing would be to go spend a semester where that language is actually spoken, to be there physically. So I, I don't see it as a, this Manichaean, this is the only way to do it, and the technology memorization, uh, you know, other thing is the bad, but it's more of a, an ordering, right? Um, this can supplement, but if this is the main thing, then that's, uh, I think, an impoverished way of, of learning. Yeah. Yes? Mm -hmm. 
Well, some of that might depend on what your particular calling or vocation is. Some jobs are going to require more, um, you are going to just have to have not to, you know, more data in there available to you. And then people are also just wired differently that way. Some people are just really good at that. Uh, some jobs are more um, geared the other way or more callings. Are, so I'm not sure I could give you, you know, this kind of um, rule to follow. Um, I, I think one of the things to, to, to watch for is, you know, you can tell one of the things I'm concerned about is, is human relationships, right? I think, that, I think that's what we were created to be in relationship with each other. Uh, the first problem in the Genesis account is not the fall, it's that man was alone, right? That's, God says man is alone, is a big problem. So to the extent that you can be aware of when stuff starts um, interfering with actual human-human relationships. Now the irony is, of course, that Facebook allows me to keep up with friends that I would otherwise never talk to. People from high school, people from college. So it's not, again, it's not a black and white thing, it's an ordering thing. Uh, but I, yeah, I can't, I don't think I can give a, um, I think that, that being attentive to how technology is affecting us and how it's affecting our relationships and how our learning. When we go to a class, and not all classes are equal, some classes you just have to get through, right? But if you just see it as, okay, here's this body of knowledge that they're, the person's gonna give me, I've gotta spit it back out and move on. Um, I just think that's a, you know, there's a better way to look at it. And, and really, you know, not to get all uh, preachy, but I'm going to a little bit, of all the people in the world, right? You're all at Villanova, so everyone here is Villanova. Everyone's equal in that sense. But if you look at it globally, you're incredibly privileged to be here, right? Incredibly privileged to have four years to spend, uh, and you're paying for it, right? It's a, a lot of money goes into it, but that you're able to is also a, a privilege, right? Um, so it, just to, to look on that, to look on those classes as an opportunity to not just get information in, but think about what sort of person you should be and how that's gonna work out for the rest of your life. So. Sorry for the preachiness. My dad's a preacher, I can't help it. Yes, sir. Yeah, although, what kind of world would that look like if we all were experts at everything? Well, but then we, we wouldn't be yeah, all experts in everything, so we'd all be pushing in different directions. At first, we all start at the same group, but then we push. Yeah, I think, well, but, but then, the same way that we, I mean, this hypothetical, it's, kind of, it's interesting, eventually that knowledge will also be uh, digitalized, and everyone could have that knowledge that we're pushing in different directions. It just builds on itself. Um, Yeah. Yeah, th I th anyways, this is some of the things that Ray Kurzweil and the transhumanists are talking about, that once we are able to ascend to this sort of knowledge, then it will, will, will basically live forever, right? Cause as long as there's power. Um, it's, uh, and I, I'm not a scientist, I don't know how all that works, and I'm actually kind of doubtful that it can. Uh, why wouldn't we want to do that? Um, I think my initial one is, is we have then uh, lost our humanity. We're no longer, hu human beings are limited beings. And that's actually not a bad thing. Death, in one sense, is a bad thing. In another sense, I mean, as a, as a Christian, I think death is a built-in safety valve. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing movies and I'm a Professor Morty as geeky as I can be, so I might as well make a Tolkien reference and just seal the deal. Uh, and, you know, in the Lord of the Rings universe, death, the elves call death the gift of the gods to men. That death is a, is a release. Think about living forever and the foibles and the character flaws you have keeping on going and extending, extending, extending. Um, your vision, I think, would work, the one you've described, not necessarily saying it's yours, if human nature was perfectible. And I don't think human, I mean, I'm too much Augustine in me to think human nature is perfectible. It actually, I think it could be really, really awful if we were all experts on those things. All experts and also not loving those things because we hadn't worked for them. Why, we'd just gotten them on a silver platter. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, either you find that attractive or you find it terrifying. And I'm not sure there's a common um, underlying structure that's going to adjudicate between the two visions. For me, that sounds really scary, but it but sounds, it could be really pretty interesting for you. That's, that's yeah. Um, thank you very much for this really provocative lecture. I haven't thought about most of these kinds of things that are coming down the, the pike. So um, is there any, in, in terms of the people
people are working on these kinds of new possibilities and scientific advancement, is there a thought that um, you can download not only theoretical but also practical knowledge? Or I mean, because usually people say on computers right. that there's certain things you can do, right, that has to do with you know facts and so on. But that discernment, um, are we are we saying now that discernment is it depends on who you ask. So you already have tens of thousands of Americans with cochlear implants, which translate sounds so that the brain can understand them. Right. This is the uh, one of the things that's being done in terms of this brain-computer interface. But you could extract your question from whether we could download that to artificial intelligence. What is the whole point of artificial intelligence? But to teach computers how to have this discernment, how to think and reason and whether or not that's possible. And there are some very smart people who say it's in principle impossible, it can never happen. And there are some very smart people who say, yes, it can. Um, the guys who think that it can happen, they have this sort of, I mean, they talk about faith. They have a faith that this is very, very possible. And given that what they think is going to happen with the, ad, you know, I don't remember what the law is, maybe computer major, computer science majors know this, the law that tech, uh, computing power doubles every two years, something like that. So they extrapolate over time, and given that rate of progress, and it is pretty amazing, right? You have to give it pretty amazing what we can do now that you couldn't do 50 years ago. They think that eventually we will be able to do that. So if you can solve the AI problem, then you can presumably program it, that into your brain as well. I'm rather doubtful that can happen in principle, but yes? Well, that's, I mean, that's where different colleges have made different decisions, right? Some colleges, are, um, there's a uh, Liberty University, for example, has 14,000 students there and, and 66,000 online students. Uh, I think that's, I mean, I, I, I'm not, a, I think online education, it's, it's almost like, th you know, think about the, the soldiers or someone serving overseas. Aren't you glad you have Skype? Aren't you glad you have email you keep in contact? If you can't be together, then that's, the, that's fine. But how much better is it when you're at those reunions when the person comes home and they're physically together and they can see each other? I tend to think education in person is that much better than education online. Online education can have its role to supplement, but it, as soon as it becomes the main course as opposed to a side dish, then I think you've got a problem. Um, but that's me. There are a lot of folks that are moving forward. And this is going to be the next big thing. And, it, and, and, and on their side, right, it democratizes education. So that's the plus. It gives opportunities to people who otherwise might not have them. And that's a real plus. So that's why I say it's not black and white. There's good reasons on both. Um, but, you know, ideally, I think you want, you want more of a communal sort of experience. So. Oh, one of you had your hand up before the other one did. He did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you'd have, uh, you know, we talk about the uh, gap between rich and poor, which has gotten, you know, increased a great deal. This, I think, would stratify it even more. I mean, if you want to talk about another film that gets into this Gattaca, uh, may, some of you may have seen the movie Gattaca with um, Jude Law and Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. Uh, I think it was, was that back in the 90s? Yeah, 2000. And it's about enhancement, about, and, and those who are born with genetic enhancement, they're basically the new elite and those who aren't. So th I think you, that's a very good point in terms of egalitarian concerns. Not only will different societies be way better off, but within those societies, we already have a stratified society, and those, those gaps, I think, will, will grow even more. So I think there's some pretty interesting things to think about with that as well. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, this is actually, I mean, not the Neo method, but this flipped classroom idea is being done in a lot of places where your job as a student is to watch a lecture at home on your own time, and then you can come and the classroom time can be used to talk about it. And I, I have no problem with that as a way of trying to uh, 
to, to it, the idea then is instead of you just sitting there passively listening to something you could have read or watched, you are actually able to have this interaction. So the accent, I think it's good. Um, the, the Neo method, uh, I mean, part, in this case, another thing, that, that, you know, something would be shooting into the back of my brain and, and feeding me knowledge that way. Might have other reasons to be skeptical about that. But with regard to just spending time, you, you learn the stuff, and then the time spent together is discussing it, I think that's a pretty, you know, that seems like a, a good thing to, to try out and see what happens. And, and a lot of, that's a, that's a new fad, not fad, it's a new practice that a number of different colleges uh, are trying out called the flip classroom. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to suggest that maybe this, uh, and I think this is already in your paper, this is not really about technology necessarily at all. I think technology is an extreme version of it, but it's already there in, uh, in the Karate Kid itself where there's the relationship, Daniel Cohen's with Mr. Miyagi, that, that you were really stressing, where the education is not simply the gaining of a set of, of data or right. skills, but also the forming of a relationship and the, and the, the sharing of a love of a certain yeah. practice, um, which in the film is contrasted to the way that the yeah, good point. teaches karate, where yeah. he just has a room full of guys, and he just tells them to do stuff, and they do it. Right. Um, and then even in the tournament, he gives them orders, and they obey. Right. right. Yeah. And so, I mean, the difference is not between face-to-face -face learning and online learning, the difference between face-to-face -face learning and sitting in a lecture hall with 300 other students in front of a professor reciting the same lecture he's always recited, right. where he never learns your name and never cares. Right. And it's, a da it's a data dump. Yeah. Right, right. But then that's the same thing. So again, this doesn't have anything to do with technology necessarily. This has to do with education as the building of relationships. Uh, yeah, the, that you be face-to-face -face not, does not mean that it would be good. But it, I think it's it, one of the things we'd probably, in terms of the best model, necessary but not sufficient. Right, um, but that's yeah, that's right. Uh, t but the, where we see it most often, in terms of applying this to where we meet it, that's where I think the technology is where we're most likely to run into it. Right. But yeah. What I'm saying is technology may be just taking a model that already existed for most people. Yeah, the bucket model. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just making it more efficient. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. The other thing to notice about the Karate Kid is Daniel doesn't have. There's no dad in the story, right? Yeah, right. And Mr. Miyagi's lost his his wife and child, so you also have this very strong familial sort sort of reconnection there uh, as well. Great questions. Yes, Mr. Wick. Peter. Uh, thank you. This is a great talk today. Um, and it seems that one of the things that's been great is that the various different things that film are worked at the several levels. Right? So you have um, different conceptions of how knowledge is acquired, but also different conceptions of what knowledge is and why it's being acquired. And all three of those are meant to be pretty different. Um, so it seems to me from the film The Matrix, Neo learns a lot of stuff, but what's striking isn't just he learns it in a way which has no effect on his goals or, or character. It's purely um, allowing him to affect his will uh, more, more powerfully. Whereas the conception of the martial arts that's being somewhat targeted is it's transformation in a way that affects what your goals are. Mm -hmm. okay. My real question is, um, uh, does the argument against um, the impersonality of, of learning and existence also apply to learning from books? Hmm. Um, Openshot says that the, the real innovation of Machiavelli, which presupposed supposes that governing, is something that you might learn from a book. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like that might be kind of It is, but it's also uh, Machiavelli's, at least the print, is also a job application. Right. right? Uh, he's writing a letter and he's hoping that there will be a personal relationship afterwards whereby he can be the consigliere. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think. Um, in a way, a book and, and even a letter, um, I think I, 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 it's a great question, and I, I want to think about it more. The difference, I guess, just think about it off the, off the top of my head, uh, is you, you're almost having this sort of one-to-one -one, um, relationship with the author, right? Uh, and you're mulling it over, and if you're like me, you're writing in the margins, and, and I'll even sometimes you know, talk to the author when I'm, people think I'm crazy. But, you know, um, and the other thing is, if you, you can do that and you can learn a lot, uh, but even if we're talking about the optimal, what do you want to do when you, when you have found a great insight, you've just figured this out about the author or about the book, the great book you've been reading, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to find someone else who's read the book, right? You want to talk about it with someone else. So I, I do think, I think the book um, is, is probably different in kind because of the sort of thing it is. It's a, it's a dated and time distance one-to-one -one sort of um, relationship. And then it also 
contributes to the incarnational discussion community. Uh, because you, I mean, think Plato's dialogue is a group of guys sitting around talking. And you know, there's these layers upon layers of meaning. And then also, when you do it in a class, you're doing the very thing they're doing in the book. Uh, and that's a qualitatively different sort of experience than just you muscling through it yourself, which you can get a lot out of. But until you talk about it, I think you don't really get it. So, yeah. Take one more question. Is there, oh, thank you for the um, stimulating. I guess I wonder, is, is there actually a version of the Karate Kid almost endorsed in the Matrix? And what I mean is that Leo has this data dump, but in two ways you can look at if in the karate scene, he doesn't know, he has, he has this, he's ingested this information, but he doesn't know how to use it. That's the whole point of his interaction with, um, Mor with Morpheus. Uh, Morpheus yeah. is that he's, you know, he's, he's not perfected it yet. Right. He hasn't actually, even if that's necessary as a virtue for him to do what he needs to do as the one, mm -hmm. he hasn't actually been able to form himself Yeah. He doesn't immediately actually jump because he doesn't know who he himself is or doesn't believe that he himself is the type of person. So there's something about his nature, even as this sort of mechanized individual, that even with the data dump, by ingesting this, he hasn't, um, he hasn't personalized it. And so in that sense, there's almost this intimate, I know that these are, these are distinct types, yeah. you know, categories for you know, a type of, but on the other hand, it's almost as though you know, the matrix itself doesn't present this as, as something that still needs Right, you're right, and that's fair. So that's a good, I think, um, qualification, and uh, and I'll I will definitely uh, use that because Neo still has to make do the, make the right decisions. He still has to sacrifice himself. He still has to. It's, it, he's scared to jump over the thing, um, and so there are some things that apparently can't be programmed. Uh, there are some character traits. So I think that's I think that's a fair uh, qualification. Yeah, def defense of the Matrix. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.